Everything that happens in our lives has an effect on us, who we spend our time with, where we are, and the feelings that can take over at any moment. College is a time to figure out those people, places, and emotions that mean the most and even change our lives. For KBIA, I'm Emily Aiken, and today we're sharing lessons on how our environment can affect us as people. They come from University of Missouri journalism students who are challenged by their professor, Berkeley Hudson, to find significant moments in their lives and share them. We're happy to bring you some of those stories in the author's own voices. We'll start with Emily Hurley. She took a risk and recently moved to London, a place she had hoped to end up one day. While she was there fulfilling her dream of being the cliche 20-something-year-old finding herself, she realized that what she really needed to find was resolution. I remember the crisp, jolt of air that hugged my face when I first hopped out of that quintessential black cab. It was 7 a.m., the cobblestone streets were humming, and a quiet hush of comfort flooded through my 19-year-old soul. Everyone had warned me how overwhelming big cities were, but rather than fear, I was instantly calmed by the bustle of central London. For the first time in months, there was a sense of tranquility in my bones, a sentiment that had been foreign for the duration of my freshman year. Gone were the insecurities, doubts, and loneliness, Instead, there was a wave of peace. You see, ever since I was little, I always wanted to live in a big city. Growing up with two New York parents, I envied their 18-year romance with the Big Apple and their wanderlust tales. And of course, this desire only furthered as my obsession for HBO's Sex and the City spiraled. From the magic of Central Park to sophisticated dinner dates and sipping on cranberry-infused Cosmopolitans, I couldn't imagine anything better than being like the infamous Carrie Bradshaw in her concrete paradise. I suppose that's what brought me to London in the first place. I needed to find myself, as every early 20s cliche begins. But it was true. Frankly, I was more lost than I had ever been. I'd seen a lot of pain so far in college, and let's just say I hadn't handled it all with pride. From the cold rejection of a four-year boyfriend to the endless tears of desperation I'd masked with my pillow, I needed to escape. However, it wasn't that simple. I've been forced to learn that heartbreak is inexplicable, and at times it's as if the chaos and self-loathing will never cease. You can try to absorb your friends' echoing mantras of how you deserve more and don't need them, but for me, it didn't matter how many times a day they sang about my worth. I just wanted him. I craved his familiarity, his coveted corks reserved only for me, and I couldn't understand why he found it so easy to leave. As we grew further apart, the memories of him were haunting, and his final words of no longer loving me, or if he ever did, were unbearable. He'd become a stranger, a walking ghost, and even though I'd memorized the subtle clunk of his footsteps, it was clear he wasn't returning. When the application for the London School of Economics opened, I knew it was my chance. To grab a taste of the cosmopolitan life my Midwest self so desperately desired, and more importantly, to break his chains and rebuild my own narrative. So off I ran. As I collected my two leather bags and tipped the cab driver, something no rational Londoner does, I realized how far from home I was. In the heart of Trafalgar Square, the minuscule details like the roar of the tube or the gap-toothed grin of an eager city-goer energized my fragile state, and it confirmed there was so much more to this world than where I'd come from. I could breathe again, because in that moment, my past no longer defined me. I wanted to stroll down the winding street towards the square's prominent lions and shout a song of victory. I wanted to kiss these wonderful strangers and tell them all my secrets, and I hadn't even been there for ten minutes. But that's the beauty of London. It took me in when I was beaten down, 
It accepted my scars and welcomed me. It gave me hope without asking questions. And in those first steps on its treasured soil, I knew I was finally free. Sometimes bad things happen, and sometimes bad things happen in foreign places with foreign people and no way to get help. Nwadi Oko found herself in a similar situation and realized her knight in shining armor wasn't someone she had dreamed of. We were playing the game Concentration, where you choose a category and list items that pertain to it. For example, if the category was cities in the U.S., you could say New York, Atlanta, and so on. The game wasn't used to pass the time. It was to get our minds off the actual time, 2 a.m. We were in Badalasco, Italy. We hadn't heard of it either. For spring break 2017, a misleading description on the Airbnb website bamboozled me into thinking we would be walking distance from downtown Milan. Instead, we were a two-hour train ride from the city in the middle of nowhere where the taxis stopped running at 8 p.m. and Ubers were a thing of the future. Our group, containing my mom, my sister Nani, and my friend Natalie, had no idea about that last piece of info, that the taxi stopped running at 8 p.m. We unknowingly but foolishly took the last train out from Milan to Badalasco at midnight. When we got off, we were met with a pitch-black parking lot and one flickering street lamp that we huddled around like moths to a porch light. We were four women sitting on the concrete outside of a deserted train station alone. Walking the 40 minutes home was not an option. Our Airbnb was wedged in between acres of farmland and no sidewalks or streetlights. It wasn't safe. And to make matters worse, it smelled like shit potato pie, according to my sister. When we called the host and explained our predicament, he graciously said he'd pick us up. Sadly, he would be here once his airport shift ended two hours from now. So began concentration. Starting with Natalie, ending with Nani. The subject is movies. Blindside. Legally Blonde. Ocean's Eleven. Why is there a car with four men in the corner of the parking lot over there? Their car was circling the train station. It really didn't make any sense. What business did they have here at 1 a.m.? The next departure wasn't for hours. They're casing us, Nani said. I don't know what it meant, but my mom didn't correct her. They circled the parking lot again, this time inching closer to us. They're sizing us up, Nani said, and they have the upper hand. And then my mom spoke for the first time since we cozied up to the curb 90 minutes ago. Whatever you do, do not get into the car. Whatever it takes, do not let them get you into the car. Her blunt words chilled my spine. We didn't know who these men were or what they wanted, but she was preparing us for the worst. The car inched forward, closer to us. Rattling off Psalm 23 became my only concern. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. With my head tucked in between my knees, rocking slowly back and forth, I heard car tires pick up in speed. And there he was. I don't believe in helpless princess stories. I don't need a man to save me. But when I looked up and saw our Airbnb host pull up in his red Volkswagen Rabbit to carry us to safety, he may as well have been a knight riding in on his trusty steed. We left up in the back of his two-door and peeled off, and the other car stayed in the parking lot and thankfully didn't follow us. We never talked about that night. The next day, we were back in the Airbnb before sundown. When Savannah Walsh moved to New York City for the summer, she was determined to be a local. She wanted to walk, talk, and act like she's lived there her whole life. But the city subways had something else in mind, and in turn gave Savannah a new way of looking at her time in the Big Apple. 
There isn't a much more humbling experience than the city of New York's subway system, especially when you're traveling from opposite ends of the city, Brooklyn to the Upper East Side, in the heat of June, a little hungover, and a lot regretful, with nothing but 27% of phone battery and two weeks of experience living in the city to armor you. But this was me, a far cry from the vision I had had of myself when I was 14. After one visit to Manhattan, I swore it was the place for me. So when I got an internship in the city the summer before my senior year, I was determined to look like a local from the second my plane touched on at LaGuardia. To me, the scariest thing about living in New York, population 8 million, was somehow looking like I didn't belong there. So I studied maps, downloaded apps, and made plans with any acquaintance I had. I filled my days with brunches, museum tours, happy hours with fellow interns. My favorite writer Nora Ephron once said, Above all, be the heroine of your own life, not the victim. I was sure I was faking it well. But my carefully constructed facade crashed down when I emerged from the subway that sticky June morning. I looked for the Duane Reed that would reliably meet me at the corner, but a decrepit dumpling place met my eye instead. 9% in dropping, nothing looked familiar, so I sat in the unair conditioned empty but somehow claustrophobic restaurant. My hunger was satisfied, but my geographic panic lingered. I walked outside and circled the blocks. I felt like each person who passed could tell I was an outsider. My shoes were impractical, my head throbbing, my phone drained into silence. Every place I passed felt unattainable, and the feeling soaked into my body until I could feel myself sinking along with it. Even the tears that sat in my tightened chest felt inadequate. I looked up to keep them from falling and saw a strand bookstore. I had gone there my first week in the city. Relief washed over me as I practically sprinted inside. There was a table display with a sign that read New York Stories. The most of Nora Ephron, a worn copy of which currently sat in my childhood bedroom, was perched on the end. Nora had migrated to the city. I bet she had been lost before, I thought as I clutched the cover. I bought the slice of comfort and walked. It was like holding on to something had stabilized me. I wandered into antique stores. I witnessed a man tell a small crowd in Washington Square Park about his direct connection to Mars. I saw taxis whiz by, knowing full well that any moment I could get one and back home. But suddenly I didn't want to. Instead, I succumbed to my surroundings and asked strangers what to do instead of romanticizing who they were. A woman hoisting a stroller told me which train to take. A man holding a ukulele helped me find a phone charging portal. This was the New York I loved. That evening, I sat in Central Park only a few blocks from home. Out of one of the most unglamorous and stressful days came beauty. Maybe being that heroine wasn't knowing what I was doing all of the time or proving every minute that I belonged. Being the heroine, it seemed, was doing what every New Yorker did surviving, reinterpreting the embarrassing into something empowering. If New York was this love that I suspected it was, wouldn't it accept me in all of my lost messiness? Heroines do emerge from the burrows hungover, I thought. Sometimes they eat greasy dumplings for breakfast. And yes, they even get lost on their way back home. The people in our lives help shape who we become, whether they're here for a long time or not long enough. Laura Miserae found that when her grandmother died, her memory was kept alive through the furniture she left behind. I never felt her presence in the cemetery, not the day we buried her and never once in the weeks and months after, when I would descend the grassy hill and delicately place my hand on the cool cement of her gravestone. After my grandma died, nine days before Christmas 2014, I searched desperately for a space where I could feel close to her. There remained so much I wanted to tell her, but the few words I did utter felt stuck at the bottom of the hill, where I knew she wasn't able to hear them. In eighth grade, I had the lead in my school musical. There were nine performances over three weekends, and she sat beaming in the front row at all nine of them. That was the kind of support she'd given me for 18 years. The loss of such a strong pillar holding me up was a shock to my system. I'd always heard that grief weighs people down, but 
Mine did the opposite. It shattered my once strong foundation and sent me spiraling with nothing firm to hold on to. After months of aimless driving down familiar streets, my quest to find a place that let me pretend she wasn't really gone ended in vain. I left for college thinking that my words would never find her ears again. When I was moving into my first college apartment, I made a list of all the stuff I'd need to get. Kitchenware, hand towels, a desk, a bed. My mom suggested we take what I needed from Grandma's house, which remained as she'd left it. At first, I felt uneasy. Won't the aunts and uncles mind that I'm just using their old stuff? I mean, won't Aunt Lori care that I'm just taking the desk out of her childhood room? They won't care, my mom assured me. It's all just sitting here, and Grandma would want you to use it. That's how the bed frame my Uncle Alan slept on in the 1970s and the desk that got my Aunt Lori through high school ended up packed in my dad's Ford F-150 riding to Columbia. The furniture made my room feel homey and complete, but I didn't feel her there with me just because I was using furniture she'd bought decades ago. My grandma had left me this voicemail the summer before she died asking if I wanted to come have a slice of her strawberry pie. It haunted me for years that I never called her back about it. I know that she knew how much I loved her, but freshman year of college, I was plagued by the realization that if she were still alive and well, I'd likely go days or even weeks without calling her. The guilt that came with believing that I could have valued her better paralyzed me as I tried to adapt to this world without her. Then last August, my roommate-to-be for my junior year apartment didn't have a kitchen table. I knew immediately what was meant to fill our tiny space. Light brown maple wood and four matching chairs, each with a dainty heart cut out on its back. Sweet memories of fluffy pancakes with blueberry syrup, fresh-baked banana bread, even a vegetable or two when I could be persuaded. I'd eaten at that table hundreds of times. This was the table where she'd scribbled Avon orders that came blaring through her white-corded telephone while she sipped black coffee and winked at me over the rim of her panda mug. Now it's the table where I make goals for my future. This table that never faltered under the weight of all the homemade food it took to feed our family every June at the reunion now holds the snacks and drinks my own friends bring a new generation making new memories around it. Almost immediately after we hauled it up the stairs to my second-story room, I felt the change. Each time I sit at this table, I'm transported back to years of sitting across from her. Sometimes I can feel her sitting across from me still, and I can whisper to the smooth wooden surface that knew her so well. It's the only place I've found in the whole world where I'm sure she can hear me. Things happen in our lives that we can't control. Sometimes those things happen to the people we love most. When Noah McGee found out what was bothering his mother so much, he realized that his time spent with family was invaluable. Wednesday, October 31st, 2007. It's supposed to be the scariest night of the year, but what it turned out to be was the scariest night of my life. It was a cool fall night. It was prime weather to trick or treat. The burnt orange dust sky shined on my neighborhood as my mother took my younger brother and I trick-or-treating around the neighborhood. It was so much fun. We screamed, we laughed, we yelled as we went from house to house, asking for candy and being scared what was going to be behind each door in the process. Every time we got candy from another house, my younger brother and I would run up to my mother screaming, look what we got. She would respond with, uh, that's good, or good job, Noah, absent of excitement or emotion. I noticed my mother did not have the energy she usually had. She looked tired, exhausted, spent, she was ready to go home. Nevertheless, we continued trick-or-treating. As it got late, my mother walked my brother and I back home. Once we got in the house, the first thing my brother and I did was go upstairs and pour all of our candy on the living room floor to compare our candy. My mother immediately went to her room where my father was. My brother and I continued to be ecstatic over the candy that we had just received. Kit Kats, Reese's, Skittles, Twix, Twizzlers, we had it all. 
I remember running down to my parents' room to show them all of the candy we got. There was no excitement reciprocated. Just a look from my mom and dad absent of emotion. Just a stare. I went back upstairs with my brother and we watched cartoons for a while. I can't remember what we were watching because what happened next is something that made the rest of the night seem insignificant. Noah, Asher, we responded with a yes, but not a response. My brother and I ran downstairs into our parents' room. Again, all they did was just stare. I have breast cancer, my mother said, and silence fell over the room. I could feel my heart drop through my chest. I immediately thought about all of the memories I had with my mother up to that point, thinking her life was going to end. I was never going to be with her again. They found it in the early stages, and I promised that I'm going to fight this, she continued to say. I ignored her words, thinking it had no meaning, thinking she had no way of keeping that promise. I hugged her with tears in my eyes, thinking that this Halloween was the last good memory that I would have with her. I immediately ran upstairs into the living room and just continued to watch cartoons, but I wasn't paying attention. I just went to sleep, thinking about how I will not be able to grow up with a mother in my life. What my mother did was prove me wrong. She kept her promise and fought as hard as she could to beat breast cancer, which she did. She fought and she had beaten cancer. And now every Halloween, I can call my mother and remind her how much I love her while she's still here on this earth, because I know some sons are not as fortunate as I am. Sibling rivalry can happen in even the closest of families. Maybe you want to live up to your older sibling's accomplishments, or maybe your younger sibling is trying to live up to yours. But Carrie Littlejohn felt like his younger brother was passing him up, and it made him consider his own life. On my 30th birthday, my family celebrated. Not the occasion of my birth, though. That cold December morning north of Chicago, we watched my baby brother graduate from Navy boot camp. By morning's end, it would reveal the ugliness of my contradictions. I was a jealous soul and proud big brother all at once. As befits a Faulkner novel, brothers bond in the shadow of their father. Our southern upbringing was no different, each of us fearing we'd somehow fallen short of an ideal of manliness our father had left unspoken. On that morning, we sat cramped amongst the other families, watching our boy march with machine-like precision and pride and jealousy swirled inside me. I realized he and I were no longer equals. Once upon a time, my father had marched that same way, with ramrod posture and eyes like a shark. His service came decades before, as a Marine, and despite a lifetime of never calling attention to it, not even standing to receive an obligatory Veterans Day round of applause, he had been retelling stories nonstop leading up to graduation. He was proud, because they were no longer merely father and son. They were brothers in arms now. I was feeling my age that day. I was quitting my job as a lawyer and returning to school. I would leave in a month. I couldn't help but wonder, what are you doing with your life? The graduation speaker, a rear admiral, I believe, thanked us, the families. You are the real heroes here. Without you, these sailors wouldn't be who they are today. He had a stand to be recognized. Can you believe that? Us. Me. Right after he'd said that today we face more threats than we have since World War II. On that day, the day I would complete my 30th trip around the sun, it was as if the Admiral knew I was there, knew my insecurities, knew it all. He knew the last time I'd seen my brother, we'd awoken to news of another mass shooting, this time in Las Vegas. He knew the reminder that guns and bullets are real worried me as I said goodbye. 
He knew I worried about my brother wandering through an airport for the first time in his life. He knew the tears that fell in October were made of the same stuff that leaked from my eyes that morning. He knew I'd written my brother a letter every day since he'd been gone, using more stamps in eight weeks than I'd used in my entire life. He knew I was feeling guilty I'd never seriously considered serving in the military. He knew I wondered, if I had, would I feel better about myself as I entered my third decade? He knew I wanted to make my family proud. He knew that they already were. He knew I wanted to share insider knowledge with my dad. He knew it couldn't matter less that I didn't. He knew that I loved my brother. He knew my brother loved me. But knowing all of that, he had to know that I was scared. I'd become rudderless, directionless, with no wind in my sails. And as a Navy man, I'd expected him to cut me some slack on that one. Our emotions can come from the people and places we interact with in our lives, but oftentimes those emotions stand alone. They determine how we act, how we feel about those people and places, and what we do moving forward. Grant Sharple's need to please his parents has guided him through school, but it takes a toll. I just reached the ninth page of a ten-page term paper, but it's not due for another two weeks. A lot of people look at the way I complete my work as something to be admired or replicated. It seems like a healthy habit to get into, but for me, it's anything but healthy. It's difficult for me to relax or enjoy my free time. If I'm taking a break, I convince myself that what I'm doing isn't good for me because it's not productive. I thrive off productivity, and though it sounds nice, it's actually quite crippling. I always have to be accomplishing something, and for someone who manages stress quite poorly, this is an awful trait to have. Being raised as the golden child is tough, especially when you're an only child. You're always feeling pressured by the expectations of your parents, the weight bearing down on you like a sandbag preventing a stream of water. I learned the alphabet while I was still in my cradle, leaving my parents incredulous. I was always advanced in elementary school, capable of reading and writing before starting kindergarten. When it dawned on my mom that I was smart, the unrealistic expectations never relented. It's a force at my back that's never given me personal space. Growing up this way became more difficult with each passing year. By high school, my mom would be upset if she saw a B on my report card. I was involved in tons of activities with very little free time. Coming from a divorced family, I was constantly packing to go from one house to the other. When I finally had time to sit in my room, it was to do homework and it better be homework worthy of an A student. My mom also instilled in me the need to stay organized and use a planner to keep track of my schoolwork. Since my childhood, I've always felt the need to carry my planner with me. Each day is filled with seemingly endless obligations and tasks to complete. Frankly, just looking at it makes me feel anxious and stressed. But in a bizarre way, I feel that I absolutely need that planner, that I would be unable to function without it. I wouldn't be able to eat, sleep, or breathe without it. I remember once leaving it at my girlfriend's house, and once I realized that I'd forgotten it, I was on the cusp of a breakdown. Yes, I'm organized. Yes, I'm productive. But I'm not happy with the ways in which I'm organized or productive. I know it's possible to be those things without being a giant ball of stress, but it's the only way I've known to be those things. I was raised that way and I don't know how to untie myself from the anxiety that I constantly attach myself to. I've always felt the need to be perfect and make my mom happy, but lately I've been striving for imperfection. 
I want to liberate myself from my planner and grades because, ultimately, these are matters that are really quite meaningless. Being stressed is the only way that I feel I can achieve something, and it shouldn't have to be that way. And being the golden child never really makes you feel all that golden. Books, TV shows, and movies can help us realize who we are. For Gabby Velasquez, using the role-playing game Dungeons & Dragons helped reveal a part of her identity to her boyfriend and herself. One night, as I was walking home from a play rehearsal with the young man who would later become my boyfriend, I started talking about Dungeons & Dragons. For those of you unfamiliar with it, D&D is a dice-based roleplay game where, through storytelling and chance, player characters adventure through an open-ended fantasy setting, casting spells, fighting dragons, all that good stuff. I started talking about a character of mine, Eris, a war domain cleric, or a healer who can fight, with the tendency to flirt with anything that moves, much to my game master, Kendrick's dismay. I told him about how at the end of one of our sessions, my adventuring party entered a tavern, and I had Eris flirt with the male bartender, and his twin sister both. So what, Eris is just a raging bisexual? He asked. Oh, I thought, he's on to me. <laughs> she follows my proud example, I replied. He smiled, nodded, and the conversation went on normally. That's how I came out to him. It's only right that I use D&D to do so. My boyfriend-to-be didn't know it at the time, but that moment was a test, one he passed with flying colors. It's a test many queer people have to put loved ones through. Can you accept me for who I am? It's a difficult question. I'm still figuring out what being bisexual means to me, and I've lived with this knowledge for years. The stories of my coming to terms with my bisexuality and of falling in love with D&D run parallel to each other. My confidence in my sexuality wouldn't exist without the game that gave me an avenue to explore it safely, and the game wouldn't hold as much meaning without that exploration. I first realized I was bisexual my senior year of high school when a close friend of mine came out to me as bi, and my knee-jerk response was, I am too! It was like a jolt of lightning through my veins, the kind of identity-altering realization I was not ready to process yet. I did not tell anyone for years. It's nobody's business but mine, I told myself. No one needed to know. But hiding from yourself is exhausting, and I soon found myself seeking an outlet to explore my sexuality comfortably. I found that in fantasy. The characters we create in D&D are deeply personal. We choose their race, class, we flesh out their backstory. It's no surprise, then, that many players use D&D to do some soul-searching. The game encourages such exploration in its rules, which state your character's sexual orientation is for you to decide. For me to decide. I wasn't ready to live as Gabby the Bisexual, so I made Eris instead. I created Eris to be everything I wanted to be. She was confident, strong-willed, and more than anything, absolutely open about who and what she was. She fell in love with men and women and didn't have to feel shame or fear for it. I admired that about her and took great joy in embodying her for our weekly games. And with every roll of the dice, my comfort with myself grew. I began opening up about my sexuality as our campaign went on. I came out to more friends and select family members. And now, long after our campaign's conclusion, I'm talking about it in public and I'm not afraid. I may not wield divine magic or a warhammer, but I am surrounded by people who love me. And most importantly, like Eris, I know that I am worthy of it. You just heard from Gabby Velasquez, Grant Sharples, Carrie Littlejohn, Noah McGee, Laura Miseré, Savannah Walsh, Nwadi Oko, and Emily Hurley. They were all students in Berkeley Hudson's advanced writing class at the University of Missouri this spring. To hear these commentaries again, and to hear from other students in the class, go to kbia.org. 
I'm Emily Aiken. Thanks for listening.